power, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you turn to Hebrews chapter 4, we continue in this series, walking through Hebrews, where Lord willing will be for the rest of this year and into next year. There are many words that describe our relationship with God throughout the Bible, words that we love and cherish, salvation, redemption, adoption, imagery like bride and groom, God's household, God's house. We are many members of one body. He is the vine. We are the branches. We are his servants. We are his ministers. We are his ambassadors, his disciples, his followers. Our relationship with God is really this multifaceted gem that you just keep turning and turning in the light to see another aspect, another shade, another meaning that's so meaningful to us. And we, we just love and, and it's inexhaustible. We spend our entire life, all of eternity, understanding this work that God has done for us in salvation and redemption and, and never exhaust all of it. And here we have in Hebrews 4 another term. Our salvation is described as entering the rest of God. Entering the rest of God. Now before we read through this passage, just know it, it sounds complicated. So if you're halfway through and you're like, I don't really get this, join the crowd. That's how all of us are. And so we'll, we'll try to work through and, and make it make as much sense as possible. Uh, don't get turned off by how confusing it sounds. Uh, but before uh, we get to Hebrews 4, we actually want to pick up in, in verse 7 of chapter 3 to get the full context because it really is an exposition of Psalm 95, which is quoted a lot in this passage. So beginning in verse 7 of chapter 3, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you heart, hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked to anger with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be any, uh, any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For those who heard and rebelled, wasn't it all who came out of Egypt under Moses? With whom was God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, since the promise to enter his rest remains, let us beware that none of you be found to have fallen short. We also have received the good news just as they did. But the message that they heard did not benefit them since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. For we who have believed enter the rest in keeping with what he has said, so I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Even though his works have been finished since the foundation of the world, for somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in this way, and on the seventh day God rested from all of his works. Again, in that passage he says, they will never enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience, he again specifies a certain day today. 
He specified this, speaking through David after such a long time. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. The uh, part of the confusion about understanding these first 11 verses of chapter 4 are because the author mentions several different kinds of rest and doesn't make the distinctions clear. And so we have to kind of decipher and figure out which, which of the rest is he talking about. So we're going to think through those chronologically first, like where they occurred within the storyline of Scripture to help us get a better understanding of the different rests that he's talking about within those first 11 verses. So the first rest that occurs in creation is when God rested after creation. God's rest from creation. Genesis 2, 1 through 3. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy for on it he rested from all his work of creation. This is where the whole concept of rest was created. When God, who wasn't fatigued, that's not why he rested, but when the work was done and the work was good, God rested. And this is the creation of what became known as the Sabbath. This is the creation of what we understand even today as the weekend. Work and labor for so many days, six days, are what's being created in our culture is five days, and rest for one day. This was so essential to who God is and what he desired for his people, it became one of the Ten Commandments. Honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It became a practice of God's people for thousands of years to take the last day of the week, for them it was a Saturday, and be very intentional about stopping work to worship and enjoy God's blessings of creation. Now, we know by the time of Jesus, it became a point of contention between Jesus and the religious leaders. What had developed over thousands of years since the Ten Commandments was this complicated systems of rules and traditions that man created to understand how to obey the Sabbath, but then they took those rules and traditions and they elevated them above the Sabbath and missed the heart of the Sabbath, the heart of the day of rest. And, and you can understand how that happened. Like, how exactly do you rest? What constitutes work? What constitutes rest? How far can you walk? How much weight can you pick up? What happens if your roof caves in or some tragedy happens on the Sabbath? Can you do anything about it? By the time of Jesus, the Sabbath then was no longer a time of rest and worship, but it was just more work to try and understand and keep all the rules of the religious leaders. And Jesus comes along on the Sabbath and he heals someone. And they want to kill him because in their mind, their rules, he's doing work. And what happened throughout the Gospels was Jesus redefining the law of God, giving clarity about what God had intended and desired in his law all along. By the time of the New Testament church, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, God's people were no longer bound by Sabbath regulations. The day of worship was moved from Saturday to the Lord's Day, Sunday, the day Jesus rose from the dead. And while there is still a necessity for us to live in this rhythm of work and rest, we're not bound by the same rules and regulations of the Old Testament. Your best day of rest and worship might be Friday or Monday. 
as long as there is a day where we stop our labors and enjoy God's blessing and creation. And this is not going to be a sermon on how to, how to practice Sabbath rest in your life. That's another sermon for another day, but there's tons of great resources, and we'd love to have that conversation uh, with you if you want to know more about that. But if you've never really tried to practice this rhythm of work and rest, you know it takes a lot of effort to actually rest. Like you really have to plan to do it and do it well. Discipline to stop. But this whole idea of resting and worshiping and enjoying God and his blessings after working goes all the way back to creation. And it's fascinating how it's so much in the DNA of humanity that even in non-Christian spheres of influence and cultures, they recognize the value of rest today. The importance of rest and fighting against stress and anxiety and being overworked. Uh, Even in athletics, there's been tons of research in the last 10 or 15 years and sleep studies done for professional athletes so that nowadays professional athletes are really regimented and even collegiate athletes, about the amount of rest that they get so that they can perform well when they're playing the sport. And so everyone kind of understands this uh, intuitively. But that's the first kind of rest mentioned in this passage and that we see in the chronological story of Scripture, God's rest from creation. You see it mentioned in the second half of verse 3 and through verse 4. Where it says, even though his works have been finished since the foundation of the world, for somewhere, Genesis 2, he has spoken about the seventh day in this way. And on the seventh day, God rested from all of his works. The second rest mentioned is God's rest for his people in the land of promise. God's rest for his people in the land of promise. You see this referred to back in verse uh, chapter 3, coming into chapter 4, using that quotation from Psalm 95 in verse 3. So I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest. Verse 5, again in that passage he says they will not enter my rest. That's what he's referring back to, the episode from the Old Testament where they did not enter the land of promise. You also see its reference in verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, Joshua the one who brought the people of God into the land of promise. That's again a reference back to the same episode. So basically in this passage, It's referring to a negative experience from the history of God's people being referenced. So think back through the Old Testament. God called Abram in Genesis 12 to follow him. And one of the promises he gave to Abram was going to be a land for him and his family to live in where they would experience God's blessings and favor. And God brought Abram to this land in Genesis and he lived there with his family and enjoyed the land. But he was still without a son And none of the people that God had promised him that would be a multitude that would fill the earth and be a blessing to all the earth. He wasn't a great nation yet. Fast forward, the famine in the land forced Abram's descendants to move to Egypt, which was also part of God saving them, so they could have food. They grow into a multitude of people. They begin to scare the Egyptians because they're so numerous, and the Egyptians enslave them and then eventually oppress them. And they began to call out for deliverance. And God sends Moses and Aaron to lead them out of slavery through God's miraculous strong hand as a demonstration to the mighty Egyptian nation. These are my people. I am their God and there is no God like me. You have all your false gods you worship in Egypt. I am the one true most high God. I have power over all of those false gods. And God desires to bring them out of Egypt, which he does, establish a covenantal relationship with them, which he does at Mount Sinai, and bring them into the land of promise, a land where Abraham once dwelt, a land flowing with milk and honey, 
which is not literal, but a picture of abundant blessing and provision, a place where they could live as God's people and enjoy God's blessing and God's rule. And they make their way to Mount Sinai. They make their way to the edge of the land of promise. And they decide in Numbers 13, we're going to send in 12 spies to see if the land is really as good as God has said that it is. And there are enemies, are there enemies that need to be defeated? And the 12 spies come back and all 12 of them say, it's amazing. All 12 of them say, there are enemies, they are big, and they live throughout the land, they're tough. Two of the 12 spies say, God said it's our land, he's going to help us, let's go take it. Ten of the 12 spies say, oh no, this is too big, too scary. We're like insects in their eyes, literally grasshoppers. Let's turn around and go back to Egypt. The people listen to the fearful ten spies and refuse to enter the land they've been promised. And their unbelief and disobedience caused God to bring judgment on them. And the entire generation wandered around in the wilderness until they died. Even Moses would not enter the land of promise. Only Joshua and Caleb and the two spies and the the next generation would enter the land of promise. Now, the land of promise also becomes a promise of rest and worship and celebration in passages like Deuteronomy 12, 9 through 12. Indeed, you have not yet come into the resting place. So Deuteronomy is a book that is a covenantal renewal ceremony between God and his people. It's a reminder of who God is, what he had done for them, and how their relationship with God would function and work on the edge, the precipice of entering the land of promise. This is like, let's lay down the terms of this one more time just so we're clear. So he's saying in Deuteronomy 12, Indeed, you have not yet come into the resting place in the inheritance the Lord your God is giving you. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all the enemies around you, and you live in security, then the Lord your God will choose the place to have his name dwelled, bring there everything I command you, your burnt offerings, sacrifices, offerings of the tenth, personal contributions, and your choice offerings you vow to the Lord. You will rejoice before the Lord your God, you, your sons and daughters, your male and female slaves, and the Levite who is within your city gates, since he has no portion or inheritance among you." So this land of promise became this land of rest, became this land of safety, security, and celebration and freedom. This is what God's telling you. This land of rest, a place of God's safety, security, and salvation, a place of freedom and worship. You will no longer be enslaved, but free to live as God's people. Their enemies will be vanquished as they obeyed God and drive them out, and they will be free to obey God fully. And so there was a generation that did not enter this land of rest because they disbelieved and rebelled and died in the wilderness. Those are the ones referred to in Hebrews 4, verse 3 and verse 5. So I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest. Again, in that passage, they will never enter my rest. Those are the ones who were left to die in the wilderness. They didn't enter the land of rest led by Joshua referenced in verse 8. But then what did we find out As the story of the nation of Israel unfolds, was the land of rest really a land of rest? No, it wasn't. Which brings us to the third meaning of rest for this passage. God rests after creation. God intended for the land of promise to be a land of rest. The third rest is God's rest for today. And this is referenced in Psalm 95, which is quoted throughout this passage For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, 
As on that day at Massah in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was disgusted with that generation. I said, they are my people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest. That was a big part of last week's passage. Today, while it is still today, don't harden your hearts like they did back in Numbers 13 and the entire ju- uh, generation was judged for 40 years. They will not enter my rest. The implication given to the worshipers of Psalm 95, that's where the psalm ends, with that verse. The implication given to those worshipers were, if you don't harden your hearts, there is still a rest to enter. You're already there. This is David writing this psalm, Psalm 95. This is hundreds of years after they had already entered the land of rest. You're in the land of rest. And David, the psalmist is saying, David is saying, there's still yet another rest for you. Don't be like them who didn't enter. In other words, hear my words, believe my words, and enter this rest that I have for you. You see this in Hebrews 4, verse 1. Therefore, since the promise to enter his rest remains. Verse 3. For we who have believed enter the rest. Verse 6. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, the promise to enter the rest of God still remains. For we who have believed have entered this rest. Verse 6, therefore, since it remains, it remains for some to enter it. Maybe some of you here, you haven't yet entered the rest of God. There's people all around the world People groups, billions of people have yet to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ to enter the rest of God. And then, of course, the last few verses, verses 8 through 11. For if Joshua had given them rest, wait, I thought Joshua brought them into the land of rest. What does he mean if Joshua had given them rest? The land of rest that God intended for his people wasn't the full and final rest that God intended for his people. Joshua brought them into this promised land of rest, but that wasn't the ultimate fulfillment of God's rest. And you see this played out in their history. God would not have spoken about another day, which he did in Psalm 95, which was hundreds of years later. Therefore, verse 9, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. If You have entered the rest of God. You have rested from your works to save yourself, to justify yourself, to make yourself right with God, to give value to yourself. You're trusting in God to do all of that. Verse 11, let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. So let's, let's put it all together. I know some of you, your heads may be spinning. My head's been spinning all week. The land of promise, the land of rest, was not the ultimate land of promise and rest for God's people. Not only because some disobeyed and didn't enter, even the generation that did enter, what was life like for them? <laughs> Go read the book of Judges. <laughs> it's a dumpster fire. It, it makes... Facebook looked like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood today. I mean, it's horrible. Just up and down and in and out. Obey, disobey, p- 
punishment, rebellion, deliver. It's awful. And the book of Judges ends with no hope. Therefore, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was just total chaos. So the land of rest didn't end up being the land of rest anyway. But it wasn't God's intention for it to be the ultimate fulfillment of his rest um, uh, anyway. They didn't drive out all the enemies. They didn't obey God, all that. The ultimate land of rest God desired for his people. This was a, a foretaste, a foreshadowing of a rest yet to come. And so we could talk about a fourth kind of rest. It's not mentioned uh, here. It's kind of alluded to when he says a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. That word Sabbath in the original language of the New Testament is is unique word for Sabbath, unlike other Greek words used for Sabbath. So it's kind of alluded to, but we don't get the full description until later on in the book of Hebrews and other parts of the New Testament. Um, This ultimate place and land of total and final complete rest. uh, Hebrews 11 refers to a city whose builder and maker is God. That's what the Old Testament saints were looking forward to. Hebrews 13, 14, for we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. This isn't home. Travel to all the great cities of our world, cities that we love to go to other than Monroe. We love Monroe a lot, right? But all the other cities we love to go to with all the culture and food and and fun stuff. As good as it is, that's not the enduring city that is our home. Revelation 14 talks about this, this eternal resting place. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so they will rest from their labors since their works follow them. Those who are dead who die in the Lord will rest from their labors. There is a final full, incredible rest that we're still waiting for. As good as it can be now with God living inside of us, with us dwelling in Christ, dwelling within who God is, with us enjoying each other as the people of God, being many members of one body, on the very best days where this is as beautiful as possible, When we're gathered in a place like this or we're gathered in a home or we're serving in our city or we're in a coffee shop doing DNA and we're being transparent and real and open and honest and we're gospeling each other as good as it can be now. It doesn't hold a candle. It doesn't hold a candle to where we're headed. And those are just like hors d'oeuvres of what God has for us. Which is why it's so important for us to be together It's so important for us to be together because you don't experience that when we're alone in the same way. When we're together in community, we're experiencing the presence of God, the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the worship of God, the communion of God's people in rich and full ways that we're going to enjoy forever and ever and ever and ever. And we get an hors d'oeuvre of it now when we gather in places like this. This is the full and final ultimate rest. The rest of God is a place and it is a state of being. It is a place foreshadowed in the land of promise, ultimately fulfilled in heaven, the eternal state. But it's not just an actual place, it's a state of being because the rest of God exists wherever God's people have entered in and are enjoying his rest because they are enjoying him right where they're at. In the middle of the most chaotic, tumultuous, unpredictable, 
life you can live, you can be living in God's rest and enjoying Him and His provision of safety, security, and salvation. You can be persecuted, your life can be threatened, you can be imprisoned, and you can also be in a place of God's Sabbath rest. Because entering His rest isn't just the ultimate land of promise, heaven, where God's and God's people dwell. It's where God dwells now among his people. This is God's rest. And as we see in this passage, this offer of rest with God remains. Verse 1, verse 9, verse 11, it says over and over, the promise of rest remains. The promise of rest remains. So how do we ensure that we've entered this rest and we'll one day enter and experience God's final and forever land of rest, freedom, joy, and celebration? Look back to verse 1. Therefore, Since the promise to enter his rest remains, let us beware that none of you be found to have fallen short. For we also have received the good news just as they did, but the message they heard did not benefit them since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. It didn't benefit them because there were some among them who did believe But most of them didn't, and they weren't united with the Joshua and the Caleb's who did believe. So that generation that didn't enter the rest were not united with those who did enter the rest. And they were judged by God and left in the wilderness. Verse 3, for we who have believed enter the rest. Now you almost expect verse 1 to say this. Since the promise to enter his rest remains, let us believe. But the writer Hebrews says, let us believe beware or some of your bibles may say let us fear fear what we fear or we are on guard against we're bewaring that we've made the same mistake the old testament israelites made we like them have heard the good news of god's rest and like them we didn't really believe either We only heard, and therefore we, like them, have missed it. Verse 11 is a parallel of this verse where he says, Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. This unbelief, this pattern of disobedience keeps us from entering God's rest. Guys, this is the, the greatest thing for us to be afraid of in ourselves is unbelief. This is the only thing that keeps us from inheriting all that God has for us. Unbelief. There there is no sin you can't be forgiven for. There is no power or agency of evil in this world. There is no governmental power that can keep you from inheriting everything God's created you to inherit and enjoy. The only thing is when we don't believe. When we don't believe. So the writer wants us to take this very seriously, to fear this, he says. Now this is not a fear of hopelessness and despair. So we're not, it's not a phobia. We're so afraid we just want to crawl in a corner and hide. Right? We understand that kind of fear, this hopeless fear. It's too late. The obstacles are too big. We can't do this. Like in a, 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 you see this portrayed in uh, villains and movies and television where they, they, they're getting better and better at this. There, there's, a, there's a bad guy who has no perceptible weakness. And you're like, I don't know how we're going to beat Thanos, right? What are we going to do to beat this guy? Will Tom Brady ever retire? Like, please, there's no weakness to this guy. 
It seems hopeless. And that kind of fear can lead to inactivity. This is a different kind of fear that leads to activity. If I came home one evening and told my kids, hey guys, Chuck E. Cheese is doing free pizza and tokens, and we only have one hour to get there, we better hurry. They're not going to be like, oh, we can't make it. They're going to be like running over me to get into the van, to get to Chuck E. Cheese, to enjoy free tokens and free pizza before time runs out. This fear of missing out on this amazing experience that you can still get in on. This is the one time where FOMO is good, right? This is the one time where it works out. Like, oh, there's still time to get in on it? Okay, let's, let's do it. Let's go be a part of this. This fear of missing out, fear that, that I don't want to be with those who are left in the wilderness. I want to be in that place of rest and enjoyment of God. That's the kind of fear mentioned here. Be afraid, not paralyzed. Not paralyzed because it's hopeless, but motivated to action. Because why? Since the promise to enter his rest remains. The promise remains. The promise of God that the rest, the door to enter his rest is still open, come in. And because he's promised it, it's always going to remain until, until it finally and forever closes. But that day is not today. If you're here today and you're breathing and you hear these words and you understand and you see, I, I, I don't experience the rest of God. I don't experience the peace of God and the love of God. All I'm experiencing is my sin and my brokenness and my sorrow and my suffering. I, I don't experience any of these things you're talking about. And the Spirit of God is speaking to you today. Believe. This is for you too. Trust in Jesus. Turn from your sins and see that Jesus is better. Jesus is more satisfying than those things. Be sober-minded and assess yourself to make sure you don't end up like the Old Testament Israelites, missing out on what God had for them. Now remember the original audience. Jewish Christians in and around Rome and Italy attempted to walk away from Christ and retreat to safety. Safety back in Judaism. And this book is filled with these kind of warning passages about not going back, not falling short it says, and the picture painted in this passage is don't be like the Old Testament Israelites who heard the good news of God's rest, but they only heard it. They never really believed it. Like we all understand. I mean, if you've been in any kind of counseling and relationships, you know the difference between listening and hearing. And you also know the difference between listening and believing. We can hear the noise of someone talking. We can really listen to someone or we can believe what's being said and orient our life around that message and it changes how we live and it changes who we are this letter written to christians to exhort them to continue and persevere with jesus even if it means suffering because to turn away would reveal you've only heard in vain you've not entered his rest because you didn't really believe you didn't orient your life around god and the rest that he provides but the hope and the promise is his rest remains for us to enter in if today you hear this, don't harden your hearts. If today we would make every effort to, str to strive to enter his rest and not turn away in disobedience. Isn't that interesting? We, verse 11, we make every effort to what? Rest. Strive to rest in him. Because we know our effort, our striving doesn't ultimately save us doesn't ultimately justify us. 
doesn't justify anybody. Our lives are a constant battle for self-justification. We have to have, be, do, achieve, acquire. Our family has to be, have, do, achieve, acquire. Our political party has to win. Our sports teams have to win. I have to be successful. I have to look like this. This person has to think this about me. So many things we base our identity on has to work out in order for us to be okay. And so we live restless lives because we're striving and working and waiting for all these things to work out for us to be okay. My kids have to be healthy. My kids have to be successful. My kids have to achieve. For newborns, my kids have to sleep. (laughs) And through Jesus, God says, I've done everything for you. Rest in me. Rest in my work. Settle your restless soul in me first, as Augustine discovered. Know that in me, you are whole and complete, and when your identity is rooted in me, then you are as secure as any human being can possibly be, and you can rest and then go work far and enjoy all those other things and enjoy them in freedom and worship and not slavery and bondage. How do you know if you're resting in someone or something else other than God and his rest? When that someone or something else is threatened, you attack. You lash out. You get defensive. You enter emotional turmoil. If my identity is wrapped up in the success of me as a dad or a husband, when someone is critical of that, when someone threatens that, when something threatens that, I'm going to attack Our attack will be wherever the threat's coming from. I've had to apologize too many times to my older kids for overreacting at their mistakes and sins because it wasn't righteous indignation. It was, I must be failing as a father. And that's why I got angry and lashed out at you. But if I rest my identity in Jesus first and foremost then I can address the things that need to be addressed and it be done in a healthy way because my self-justification isn't based upon my success as a dad. Tim Keller put it like this. When someone accuses you of something and you're a Christian and you have rest, how do we deal with that? You can sit there and listen to it and if they're right, say, well, you're right because deep down inside you say, yeah, there are a lot of bad things in my life, but God knows that and still accepts me completely. So yeah, point out my sins. I don't have to lash back at you. I don't have to attack you because you're right. I'm a sinner. I make mistakes. I fail people. I fail you. But it's okay. God forgives me. God loves me. God loves you. And accepts me because my standing with him is based upon the work of Jesus Christ. Or if the person criticizes you of something and they're completely wrong, Keller says, we don't come biting and snarling and saying, oh yeah, you're wrong and I can't wait to show you how wrong you are. 
Instead, inside of us, we go, well, they might be wrong about this one, but if only they knew the whole story. There's plenty of other things in my life I'm guilty of. Let us make every effort to enter his rest. Let us be diligent. Let us strive. Brothers and sisters, this is the Christian life. A constant battle. Resting in God is not doing nothing. It's striving and working as the Spirit empowers that inside of you to keep fighting to rest in Him. To base everything in the deepest part of your being on the work and person of Jesus Christ. To know in the deepest part of your being, you are okay. You are secure. You are safe. You are saved. Because our Father in heaven has done all of that work necessary for us in Christ Jesus. No matter what we face from this world, our flesh from others, we are okay. We are safe. We are secure. We are saved. We are resting in God. So this morning, take your greatest cause of fear or anxiety in your life right now. It's not hard for that to pop in your head. Imagine the worst case scenario. It comes true. Just just think about it. A little thought exercise. It comes true. The thing you're most afraid of, the thing that keeps you up most at night. Does it change who God is? Does it change who you are in him? Does it change you being okay with God in Christ Jesus? Does it change you being saved and secure and safe in him? No, it doesn't. Okay. Rest. Rest. And when you're tempted to allow that fear, that anxiety to weigh you down and overwhelm you and destroy your peace and your rest, just run back to Jesus and help him to help you, ask him to help you see everything in light of who you are in him. It doesn't take away the hard, it doesn't take away the pain, it doesn't take away the hurt or the struggle, but in the deepest core of your being, if you can ultimately be at rest because the things that matter most are most secure, okay, now I can work from this. I can, I can press into the pain, the hurt, and the struggle because that's secure. I don't need to tell you that we live in tumultuous times. Everything that seems to be able to be shaken is being shaken. What is secure anymore? You're almost afraid to get on social media because the next crisis, the next headline, the next fight. It feels like we're in a pivotal time of history. Of course, every generation says that, but this feels different. And we're going through all kinds of stuff as a culture and society and then personally, individually, as families. Who knows what? We're, we're going through all kinds of stuff. And one way we can show we're distinct is by being a people who live in and experience and enjoy the rest of God. We're okay. We're secure. We're going to be all right. It's going to be hurt, hurtful. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a struggle. It's going to be tears, frustrations. But ultimately, we're going to be okay. Because we are secure and safe and saved. We are experiencing God's presence and God's blessings no matter what 
No matter if we're persecuted, no matter if we get sick, no matter if we die, no matter if we suffer, it's okay. We know where this is headed, and nothing will stop that from happening. Death isn't forever. Sickness isn't forever. Suffering isn't forever. Sin isn't forever. Injustice isn't forever. God is. His rest is. And we get to experience that now because we get him now. Heaven starts now because we get God now. Do you believe that? You hear me. I know that. Unless you're asleep. But do you hear me and believe these words of Christ? Do not miss out on this church. Beware. Fear missing out on this. Do not harden your hearts. See what God has done for us in Christ Jesus and believe and trust and enter his rest and enjoy being the people of God. If you're here today and you're intrigued, it's not you, but you're like, I want to know more. Don't leave here today without talking to one of us. And we'd love to tell you more. Father, thank you so much for everything you've done for us in Christ Jesus. We'll be singing about this for all of eternity. We'll be celebrating this for all of eternity. It's so overwhelming. It's so much that you would look at us sinful people who only deserve your wrath and condemnation, who think we're so great, we're so self-righteous and pathetic at times, but so sinful. All we deserve is your wrath and condemnation. We're so sinful it necessitated the death of your son, Jesus. We're so sinful that you had to die for us. Yet, we are also so loved. You were glad, glad to suffer for the sins of us. You were glad to be stricken and beaten and crucified for our sins so that you could show us, share with us your love, your salvation, your freedom, your life, and your rest. We want to be a people that are radically transformed by that because we have a a broken city that needs to be radically transformed by that. We live in a broken world that needs to be radically transformed by this work of Jesus. And so transform us, enliven us, inflame our hearts, awaken us to see who we are, what we have in Christ Jesus. Let it change how we live. Let it change the decisions we make, the way we spend our time, money, and energy. Let it change how we love selflessly and sacrificially for others. Let it change how we organize our time and who we're around. Break us free from the ruts that we are in. And set us free to be unleashed on our city and region and on the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with the life of Christ flowing through us to show others who are far from you there is still time. The promise of rest remains. There's time to enter in. Believe, believe in Jesus Christ. Do this all because you love us so much. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.